Hey, Jeff Johnston, welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, today, I have a very special guest. I'm super excited to speak to Dr. Rob Kelly, all the way from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I'm looking at his profile, at his website, and all the information out there on him. He's got a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. I think we can tap today to learn a lot about recovery and addiction and mental health and I've seen the numbers coming in and they're not good. Um, you know, our, our primary uh, emphasis right now is Generation Z, Dr. Kelly. Um, yet, it seems like everybody is struggling today. So first, welcome to the show. And um, I'll kind of throw you a softball out there and let you decide where you want to start today. Probably a little bit about your background would be great. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. Great to be here. So my name is Dr. Rob Kelly. Uh, I am a PhD psychologist and a PhD behavioral scientist, amongst other things. And my background is as an alcoholic first. I was a chronic alcoholic. I'm in uh, Sale, which is just outside Manchester, United Kingdom. Grew up uh, what American people call the projects. We call council okay. estates. But grew up there, very poor family. Dad worked uh, for the gas company. Mom cleaned other people's houses. And uh, took my first drink when I was nine years old on stage. Mm. I was a musician, even at nine, in Liverpool. Wow! I remember the time and the day and everything. But uh, yeah, and uh, you know, going through a lot of stuff. Finally, became homeless and lost everything on the streets for fourteen months, begging for people uh, ten pence, which is like ten cents. And if I got ten of them deals, I could buy a, a cheap uh, beer at the local shop. So mm. yeah, it kind of took a dip real quick for me. Is that is that abnormal for kids back then uh, in in the UK to be trying alcohol at that age, or is that just kind of the rite of passage when you're in the music, you know, doing doing music and so forth? I think I think so. I've, I've, I've never met anybody at my age that drank in my position, but through the years and years studying alcoholism, addiction, childhood trauma, and behavior, find out there's more kids six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Wine was at the table all the time, but. Mm -hmm. The difference with me and, and somebody else who drank at that age is when I first took that drink, I knew that this was going to be the savior of my life. When I first tasted it and what it did to my body, it was like, boom, let's go, baby. I found the best friend. <laughs> it's funny because in the United States, you know, we always say here the kids binge drink. You know, they they, they don't really build up, um, uh, you know, any type of um, a response to alcohol. So they get to college, they just overdrink. And, you know, we're told as young adults that, oh, oh, over in Europe, you know, they have wine at dinner, you know. And so when you're a kid, you get to learn, you get acclimated on how alcohol works. Now, is that just a, an urban myth or is that something that is uh, that is true? No, it's kind of true. You know, uh, alcohol, where I come from in England, if you didn't drink, uh, you can be trusted. So it's kind of growing up. There was a pattern at home where dad worked all week and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he drank work next morning. Uh, there was always beer around the house, an actual fat in my house where I grew up. I had an actual bar, even in the projects. Mm. We had this bar with whiskey and everything, and I'd start nipping. And around 10 or 11, I started to take the alcohol and, and kind of run with that. So do you, do you attribute some of this out of just pure curiosity, maybe boredom like it was in my case? Or did you have some, uh, some childhood trauma that, that was um, precipitated some of this? Uh, everybody has childhood trauma. It just depends if you're an alcoholic addict, sensitive, or the behavior system with our caregivers. It's just more sensitive. But yeah, it was definitely trauma as a kid. But when I drank, I didn't know that. And and here's here's the difference: uh, alcoholics are born, drug addicts are made. So I have a predisposition that traces back three generations through my family. Now my brother and sister didn't get that gene. But I did. So the moment I took alcohol inside my body, it was a ticking time clock until I ended up dead in treatment, prison, or I got help. And that's what I did. But yeah, as soon as I touched alcohol, you see what a lot of people don't know is I'm allergic to the ethanol in alcohol. And it's not the drinking. It only has 1% to do with alcoholism. It's more of a psychological effect that I had regarding the trauma and regarding the alcohol that it became my go-to thing every single time even if it was sunny i'd go there if it, was, if it was raining i'd go there it just automatically became a place where i could escape to until i sorted all the trauma out and here's the interesting part people say oh, i know trauma it's a car crash a plane crash it's like oh no this is my biggest trauma from my mother to me 
How many times have I told you, Robert, you can't go to college like your brother, you're too stupid. Well, that destroyed me in later life. And uh, it took a lot of uh, trauma healing to get over that. And that's what we teach our guys today. Is something that happened here with our caregivers as children correlates to something you're doing here that's not good. And to put Mm -hmm. the both together is really hard unless you have a, a person who knows what they're doing and you cannot do it yourself. But it will go on and on through generations. So for instance, if a daughter, uh, 19, 11, 12, 30, used to have an alcoholic father that come home and every now and again would beat mom, she leaves the house and she attracts that person who ends up Mm. being the alcoholic, who ends up beating her because what it is, is that becomes the norm from the house. So we don't, so to to the greatest length of, if they attract somebody nice, who's kind to them, they'll self-sabotage that relationship because it doesn't feel right. Yeah, the codependency obviously is a big a big thing. I have some advocates I've talked with that think that's the, the largest addiction out there is codependency. Um, and you see a lot of that in alcoholic relationships, uh, both sides, men and women. But I was going to ask you something. You mentioned the word predispositioned. And do you think there's a difference between predetermined and predisposition, because I've heard some people say, well, I, you may have a predisposition to drink, but it doesn't mean you're predetermined to drink. You can determine whether or not you drink. That's a case of heavy drinkers and people that abuse alcohol. That's certainly the case. Alcoholics, it's a disease, man. Three parts of the brain differ from, you never hear anywhere else, guys, we've done the studying, differ from the normal brain. Okay, so the three parts of the brain, when we take alcohol on board, the basal ganglia, the hypothalamus, and the amygdala, where our trauma is uh, created, they're all different from the normal person. So when we take alcohol, it's different. So if you're a heavy drinker, you can determine whether you're going to drink or not. In actual fact, if you abuse alcohol to a certain degree, and you're given a sufficient warning from the doctor that you're going to die, or the wife's going to leave you, you can stop drinking or at least moderate it. With the alcohol, you cannot do that. It's complete abstinence or you're going to drink yourself to death. There's, there's, there's no middle of the road with alcoholic and the alcoholic brain. It's kind of you're in or you're out. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no, there's no middle area here because of the disease. Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have the experience, the knowledge that you have. I just have the lens I view my life from and kind of, you know, what, I went through personally, and I know I was an alcoholic for 32 years. I was considered a functional alcoholic. So, you know, I drank five, six, seven days a week, built up a very successful investment company, had a drunk driving in the 90s. You know, I had to put on a lot of weight, you know, just started feeling really crappy. And then when our son overdosed with fentanyl, um, you know, I went to alcohol very heavily. And um, my wife, unfortunately, lost her fight two summers ago. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary here in a couple of weeks um, at the age of 46 when she did the, you know, I hate to say this, but it is what it is, but she did the epitome of drinking yourself to death um, literally after Seth died. And I, yeah, I quit. I quit cold turkey, Dr. Kelly. Um, I just looked in the mirror and I decided to quit. And really for me, it's been quite easy I'm, as an alcoholic. Um, and I, I can't, I can't explain it. I don't go to meetings. I just uh, go to the cemetery. And um, that's my equivalent of going to a meeting. Um, and the voices in my head do a good job of keeping me in line. Um, and if I ever did drink again, I certainly wouldn't consider myself falling off the wagon. I would just, I'm pr- fairly pragmatic. I would just say I decided to drink today. Yeah. But why is it some people it just seems to be easier than others to do what, what I did uh, for someone who drank, you know, every day almost for 30-something years? We, we go back to uh, if there's alcoholism in the family. That's the first question. So if it's generations of alcoholism, then you're probably alcoholic. It's not. It's a fine line, like yeah. a hair length, between alcohol yeah. and alcoholism and, and heavy drinking, uh, which is crazy how you attracted the alcoholic uh, as a wife. That usually happens in, in uh, alcoholic, uh, the alcoholic world. But yeah. I've asked a lot of people. There's, there's lots of people I know who just one day got up because of the trauma of right. divorces or loss of children, but just decided because the mind sits inside the brain. It all depends how, how uh, big the mind is. So once yeah. the mind is made up, you can spread fruits and neural pathways and believe that you've had enough right. and, and goats. 
And I also think as well, uh, Jeff, is it's the internal dialogue. Sometimes yeah. we just have enough and we're done. The stories we tell each other, right? Yeah. We tell ourselves. Exactly. Yep. And internal dialogue is very important. Like if I drop a pen on the floor, I'm not a stupid idiot. I used to say that to myself. So it's obviously <laughs> seeing who you are, treating yourself nicely, seeing the, the trauma that you've seen, goodness me, and then deciding that that's not the way you want to go. You know, some kind of spiritual awakening, I don't know, psychic yeah, it's, or a neural pathway change. You know, it says it's uh-uh. interesting because I go back and look at those 14 months after Seth died and my alcoholism got worse. And yeah. I I just was going, you know, really downhill quickly. And then um, I kind of attribute this to when I wrote my book, I found some research on what's called post-traumatic growth uh, from Robert Tedeschi. I think it's Tedeschi who wrote this in the actually he's in the 80s or 90s. And it's, it's someone who has, has been um, given the opportunity and basically it's been PTSD or it's been some type of trauma. They keep getting up there, falling back, getting up there. And then all of a sudden there's a breakthrough. There's some type of growth. And I, I went through that and I'm really curious on, from a doctor's perspective or maybe from your experiences with clients or maybe your own personal situation, where does post-traumatic growth come into play when you talk to people who are struggling with alcohol and addiction? It's all down mostly for people that are not alcoholic again. Uh, drug addiction is we get used to it and become addicted, both say so the same. But it's the basal ganglion, it's that repetition, strength, and confirms, which confirms any belief that we have and any behavior that we have, especially again from childhood. That's the gateway drug, guys. Childhood trauma is the gateway drug. So I think once we get, and you, you're one of millions that I know that, that have done this, they're very few and far between what you did, especially if dad was an alcoholic or mom was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Very few people are able to do what you did. So there was some kind of traumatic event or amazing event or spiritual awakening that got mm-hmm. in and changed that basal ganglia. If you can imagine, guys, the basal ganglia being like a face clock, and you see the 10 after 20, and all of a sudden we go through mm-hmm. life and we're doing these great things, and all of a sudden around 10 to the hour, we self-sabotage, and that's alcoholism and addiction. We, we don't think we're good enough. We don't think we're going to amount to anything, so we self-sabotage. If I'm mm-hmm. in relationships all the time and going for jobs, we, we don't think we're worthy, and that comes back again, childhood trauma. So what we do is self-sabotage. What you have done is, is driven through that self-sabotage with inner belief, in some kind of spiritual awakening and been able to rectify that self-sabotaging part of the basal ganglia. That's what I think. I got to write down. I have attention deficit, so if I don't write things down while you're talking, I'll forget to ask you some really good questions. (laughs) Attention deficit. Attention deficit's a superpower, by the way. Um, So I was going to ask you a question, and I'll come back to my second question, but you know, you mentioned something about family history. Well, one of the problems that I'm finding in, in this is even in my own personal family is that, you know, you go back a generation or two and, you know, grandpa was an alcoholic. No one talked about it. So uh, how, how do you find family history when it was kind of hidden back in a generation or two? And I know a lot of people say, well, I don't, I don't know if my parents, my grandparents are alcoholics because they never talked about it. So is it, it's very possible you could have that, that generational issue with alcoholism and, and really no one knows because no one talks about it. What we find by tracing at least three generations back is this saying, grandfather liked to drink. Boom. There you go. And then you see, obviously, son or daughter passed down to you guys, passed down to the children. And you can see that generational pass down. But yeah, once you get back to two, because let's look at it this way. Ten years ago, alcoholism was still a dirty word. And it was all about inner strength. You know, just shake it off. Just be a man. Just yeah. stand up. Just, you know, stop it for the children. And only the research, part of what we've done, uh, found that, it is a disease. In 1999, I think the World Health Organization classed it as a mental illness, a disease, and that's what we find. So watch for them words, you know, delve more because we need to find out. Like somebody said to me one day, what age do you start teaching your children? My answer is eight, nine, and 10, you know, to make them aware yeah. that there's this disease loitering in the family and there's a good chance that you might be passed down to you. So just be sensible around alcohol. But back in my day, nobody knew about alcoholism. There was, mm. It was that guy in the corner with the overcoat and the string yeah. around his waist. That was an alcoholic, but yeah, here we go. Yep. 
So you bring up a good question because I have now this uh, situation in my life. When Seth died, um, our son at 23, uh, his daughter was born three weeks later and her name is Brighton. She's the name of my app I'm launching this summer, actually in a month. Uh, it's a Gen Z mental health app that, that I've put all my time and money into. And he, she's six now. And, um, you know, we talk about dad. Uh, we, I always ask her when she comes over, where's your daddy? She goes in my heart and I go, he's in my heart. So I'll kick it back to you. Um, since you kind of opened that door, uh, I'm struggling with what age at six. Now her mom is a meth addict. Um, and she wasn't, uh, basically the streets of Las Vegas homeless. I think she's back here now locally. I haven't had any contact with her, but so now I have a granddaughter whose dad died from, uh, heroin overdose, but he was an alcoholic and he was in, into drugs heavily incarcerated, et cetera. Mom now is, we're not really sure where mom is, but she has an issue as well. Um, my side of the family with my wife, there are some, some concerns with, um, with substance abuse and so forth. I can't find much in my side of the family. Here's my question to you. What is that good age to bring these things up to kids? I mean, I just really struggle with, is it eight? I mean, that's, geez, she's seven in October. That's like next year. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I know if you wait too late, then it's, it's harder to unwind than it is to breach the conversation too soon. Yeah. I think. If I was to put an age on it, like this year, I put nine, nine years okay. old, start to introduce, not anything heavy, obviously. It's just like, how would you introduce, let's, let's say, let's say I'm that nine-year-old. What, what would, how would you open that door? Uh, when daddy drinks this, he, he, he used to get ill. You know, they don't have to go anything heavy. And as the years go on, obviously talk to them about the disease, talk to them about the might be, a chance that you may be following mommy and daddy if we start to abuse. So I think it's education. It's education in, in very small bits as nine years old, and then obviously increase. You look at teenagers now, they're having sex when they're 12 or 13, they're mm -hmm. drinking when they're 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. So the earlier nine years old is a perfect time to start introducing the warnings of alcohol and drugs. Otherwise, before you know it, she's 16, because mom yeah. and dad suffered, she's out there somewhere lost, and we never, never want to see that. I don't know what the studies are in the UK, but and you're in, you're in Texas, so you, you can relate to this statistic. But um, 50% of all mental illness begins by the age of 14, and 14 is also the age of first use. <laughs> so it seems to me that 14 is like too late. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, probably a couple of years too late. So, yeah, I think... I think I get asked by a lot of parents, a lot of parents, you know, when do we have these conversations? And I just say, you can't have them too soon. Yeah. You can I, have them too late. Yeah. You can't have them too soon. No. And, and that's the worst scenario. People think the child's not old enough to be taught this or, or learn about or told about mom and dad. And it's, it's wrong. You know, look at nine year old now and 10 year olds and 11 year olds. Then look at them 20 years ago. There's a huge difference in maturity. Yeah. Well, I think and, and the cell phones, better. cell phones have made them grow up much quicker as well. Yes, exactly. You know, their access to information, they can see things very quickly that you and I, you know, we, you know, I won't say anything, but uh, our, our, our access to information wasn't as no. easy as the internet no, back so. in the day. Um, what's uh, I, I, again, I only came into this mental health space because of the death of Seth. And I really previously had no interest in this. I, I knew I was an alcoholic. But I didn't think I had a problem like most uh, the illusion between dependency and autonomy or independence, I guess. And um, and so I look back now in the five or six years and I've been thrown into advocacy and I am very curious in alternative methods. I mean, I know a um, the, the 12 steps has been around forever. It seems to be the anchor of most recovery community centers that I I work with here in, in, in Iowa. Um What's your thoughts on things like psychedelic research? Um, how accepted is that in the recovery space area? I, only reason I ask this is I've had three or four individuals on my podcast that actually run psychedelic retreats. I've watched the documentaries. My dad's a doctor. I've had these conversations. And man, it seems to me there's just, there's more upside in this potential to use psychedelics to help those with addiction, substance abuse, specifically alcohol, I heard. What's your thoughts on that? The longevity of, of the treatments is very short. I'll, I'll, is I'll, I'll, what? Yeah, uh, we have a 97% success rate here over, over 30 years. Uh, they drop down to a 22% and then they don't follow up. So I think personally, you can't treat drug addiction with a drug. End of story. Uh, but we're too early into it. 
I mean, I'm open to any. You want to go 12 steps? Brilliant. That's what I did to get clean and sober. Mm-hmm. I don't go to AA anymore, but that's what I got. I took away. If this mm-hmm. trip or this whatever, guys, you know, whatever it takes to get you clean and sober, I'm all for. But I just want to be mm-hmm. careful around the suboxone of this world, which is harder to come off than heroin. So the pharmaceutical companies win again when you have to get repeat after repeat after repeat. Mm-hmm. And, and what we found in our practices around the world, we have five around the world, is 92% of heroin addicts that end up on our, in our practice started in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. 92%. So we have to be real careful what they're giving us. The doctor is not always right, okay? It's huh, usually yeah. the flavor of the month that they will give you. God bless them. They right. have nine minutes with every patient. Not their fault. They're just passing these out. But wait, what we have to do is understand what the doctor's talking about and understand the medication. You see, I haven't got a, a problem at all with marijuana being legalized. What I do yeah. have a problem with is the government not educating the people before. Saying, well, this way yeah. it can cause from our studies, but this is the good part. And then legalize it. But they've sent people, yeah. you know, and again, yeah, I, if we're going to take a drug off anywhere that's going to be safe, it's marijuana. But there are some downsides. We need to know about the downsides before we make that decision. So obviously in legalization of a drug, I think the government has a lot of responsibility, obviously, because they're the ones legalizing it or the states are as well. But what is the... I guess the responsibility of the government and schools and um, businesses to, to provide treatment resources for those people that are struggling Uh, and in education, you go to schools right now and it's just still don't say no. I mean, don't say don't do drugs is basically the, the mantra still, you know, that, that hasn't worked. I mean, Nancy Reagan tried that with, um, was it just say no campaign that came out and it's pretty clear that it's pretty clear if, if, if I tell my child something versus you telling my child the same thing, it has a different impact on that child. And so how do we move this needle? Because fentanyl really changed everything. It used to be drugs were Russian roulette with, you know, one bullet in the chamber and you could go 20, 30 years and, and you, you probably were going to be okay from, from dying yeah. today. Today, kids are buying Percocet. Yeah. Uh, on the internet, on Snapchat, and they're fifth graders. They're not addicts. They're not alcoholics. Um, they've they've never tried anything, but they just want to stay up late with their friends or be cool. And they buy, you know, I think I think the DEA says there's eighty to ninety thousand drug dealers, and this was two years ago, Doctor Kelly. Eighty to ninety th- drug drug dealers a day on Snapchat selling drugs to kids. So I mean, we've got this multifaceted approach that we have to fight this. I mean, it's great that we can get 40 year olds to quit drinking, but there's kids that are dying now from these drugs. That is, that's where I really struggle with, you know, what's the solution? How do we, how do we, how do we, I know Snapchat's been sued and there's a lot of parent groups out there making some changes, but man, I'm, I like to think I'm optimistic on this, but fentanyl and ISO and Trank and all these new drugs now on the streets really has made it tough. And the problem is, that the, the human mind thinks everything's linear. They think, oh, we'll take, we'll take Oxy off the street and we'll save lives. Well, Oxycontin prescriptions went down 70% and deaths went up 100%. So it, it, I think the average person out there that just says, you know, this doesn't work because I, I struggle with, uh, with some of this and it being new to this space for me. It comes down to education. That's what it comes down to. Nobody wants to talk about it, you know, especially affluent parents. When she texts this, he's out the way. You know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff, and it's the responsibility of the parents first and then the government, in my opinion, because we do what our parents do, and we, and we get away with what we get away with for further life. We're not, we don't have a plan. We don't have a structure. So uh, education dialogue around that in the 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 uh, age groups to get this information over. The problem being, in general, with drugs and alcohol is treatment centers are making billions of dollars a year, and 90% of them don't care. They'll be taking right. Johnny back into the treatment center for thirty thousand dollars a month for his yep. fifth time. Shame on yep. you! Uh, and think it's okay. So it, it becomes a business now. I know what people are thinking. Well, you have a business. We vet people very, very carefully before you can't buy our services. You can't come with your big fat check and go, "Hey, listen, no, we don't do that." But, but, so you see, if you think, well, there's hundreds of people dying every day, yeah, a quadruple that, ten times it, a hundred times it. You know, we're not getting reported. Somebody dies 
in an accident, who's an alcoholic, been to the doctor every second day, goes down as car crash, goes down as liver, yeah. goes down as alcohol and drugs. And we've done our research process actually in hospitals where 90% of people on a Friday and Saturday night going through the ER was, a, was either alcohol or drug. And that of that 90%, 21% of them died that night. Out of the 21% alcoholic and addicts, only 2% went down as alcohol poisoning. That's the problem we have. Then again, the treatment centers, they, they're earning lots of money off these guys, you know? And we need to stand up and we need to educate our people what we're dealing with. Rather than the latest fad, the peer pressure, especially with all the phones and iPads around, is we really need to educate them. And parents need to sit them down at an early age and tell them exactly what's going on. Because what we've seen over the years is an iPhone or iPad addiction. And what happens is they don't have any communicative skills when they leave the iPad to go into school. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they want to be loved. 5,000 5, people on Facebook doesn't mean you have any friends. You just plug into right. the wall. So what happens is you join these peer groups, they're taking drugs, and you also have to go on it because you feel you have to. Whereas all this was explained early on, which millions of families do, I know that, um, it's an easier choice for them to make. Because what would happen, Jeff, if I told you at the age of 12 not to take drugs, you can't take it. Don't drink alcohol, right. you can't take it. So it's the way we deliver that message, right. communicate with everybody we know about it. Let's drag, I mean, I've worked with some of the biggest stars in movies, films, blah, 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 blah. Not one of them. Not what, and you talk about the, the most paid players, athletes in the world, not one of them would come out and go, hey, I've worked with Dr. Rob, I'm, a, I'm an addict, I got over it, nobody, because it would affect their career. So we're right. still locked in the cupboard over here, as it's a choice we have, it's your decision, you know, how can you look after your child, just because your wife, please stop, there was a percentage, a bigger percentage than you think, of people that can't, by the circumstances, or, uh, hereditary. You know, when I got interested in this whole thing, um, I was what I would consider an angry fentanyl dad because that's what fentanyl, you know, that my son didn't die from heroin. He got <coughs> murdered by fentanyl. He's poisoned. He didn't overdose. Um, and so um, I came into it from that lens. I'm an angry fentanyl dad. That's what I did. As I dug deeper, I started to really see the mental health umbrella. I see this being a mental health issue, not necessarily a fentanyl issue for, for this is just for me now. I, and there's probably people listening to this thinks I'm, I'm, you know, whatever, but nonetheless, um, you know, I can only be an advocate in so many certain areas. I can't try to save everybody. So I became what, what I consider a mental health advocate. So yeah, I'm certainly really fully in, 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 in engrossed in, in helping people quit drinking alcohol, uh, helping them get off pharmaceutical drugs and on the more holistic things. Um, but it just, it seems to me that this is a big game of whack-a-mole and that we, we have like, you know, I get someone to quit drinking and um, they're 200 pounds overweight and uh, their diet's hor horrendous and they're popping pills instead. And so we get them to lose weight and then they go back to, um, you know, being on their phone seven hours a day or watching Fox news four hours a day. And it's, it just seems like to me, that's the struggle is that we're not as a society looking at this as a mental health issue. The numbers I just saw today, someone post on LinkedIn that pre-COVID, it was like 16.9% of Americans had a mental health uh, issue. And, and now post-COVID, it's 40%. I mean, that's just in a couple of years, it's doubled. And so we could have everybody quit drinking alcohol. And I'm not really sure you're going to see the mental health numbers go from 20% down back to 16, just because everyone stopped drinking. Obviously not drinking alcohol will help, but it, it's got to be more than that, you know? And, that, and that's, that's where I, I'm trying to figure out how I could take from each person I meet and come up with this way to improve mental wellness in this country. And, and again, our, our mission with our app is on Gen Z first, because they're the, they're the largest generation in the history of humanity. They're a third of the world's population. Yeah. It's jaw dropping. If we don't get that ship righted, I don't care what we leave our children. Yeah. It's uh, that's a great question, Jeff. And I love your mentality around that. There's different kinds of mental illness, of course. Um, but uh, a few years ago, we won't touch it. And then going back 20 years, it closed all the mental hospitals down, and now it's the police. Yeah. Problem now. It's to overcrowded the hospitals. But when COVID hit, because if you swap addiction, no matter what the swap is, 
you still have childhood trauma that's unresolved. Mm-hmm. Period. Okay, who argues that? You're wrong. We, we have the test and trials and everything above that. So if you're not clearing it up, which most people will not because they don't understand it, they're going to carry them traits into further life. So if we don't heal the person that cut us, we're going to bleed all over the people we come in contact with because you are paying for somebody who abused you, used you, abandoned you. So that needs to be fixed 100%. And then you come into the, to the, the COVID, what's the worst thing you can do to a human being? Isolation. Isolate them. Yep. Most people on death row are insane or partly insane by the time right. they reach the chair because of the isolation. We're, we're communicating with animals. We need to be with each other. If you have 5,000 friends, like I said, you, are, you don't have friends. You're plugged into the wall. So what we have to look at is all sorts of the mental illness. But after COVID hit, our, our testings in Texas was when uh, a, a, a liquor store is an essential business, we know we've got something going wrong in life. So we look at alcoholism going up by, I don't know, 22%, divorces by 31%, alcohol use by 49% during that period. We've not seen the aftermath from that. We've not right. seen what that has caused you. It'll take about five to 10 years before we're realizing what damage that did. You know, we're asking us to stop our identity. We can't mix with anybody. We can't communicate Have anybody in our houses there's a huge mental illness and damage being done there that needs to be repaired. But nobody wants to sit down in this instant gratification world right. and address what's really causing it. Because what's happening here, you'll never put the correlation together with why you're doing it here. It takes a specialist to, to connect them. You go, oh my God, this is why I don't get that job. Because of, this is why I date that girl. Because of, and it's all well. Yeah. Nobody. It's like we. It's like we said, it's the stories we tell ourselves. You know, you said a little bit of Dr. Gabor Mate, and you also, uh, you know, he claims or he he likes to think that every every addiction stems from childhood trauma, and and I don't think there's much argument with that. Um, Johan Hari says it's uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. So you said kind of a little bit of both of them. You said isolation is what caused a lot of problems, and that's just the opposite of connection. So. Yeah, I think I think the way out of this is a combination of many things. I think we need to get out more, uh, especially with younger kids. They're not outside in the sun. They're not seeing nature. I had a um, very well-known um, keynote speaker friend of mine who does a lot of advocacy work. She said, you know, kids don't have attention deficit. They have nature deficit. Oh, and oh, I love that. I love that. Oh. You know? Yeah, I'm outside every day. I mean, every day I'm doing something. I don't care if I'm just reading a book on my deck and there's some sunlight coming in. And there's just, uh, I'm a scuba diver. So my passion is, is scuba diving. And to me, that's my equivalent of going to meetings. I guess I go to the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a good friend of mine, Ryan uh, Hampton um, with Mobilize Recovery said, um, you know, everyone's pathway is different, you know, and I think you would, um, you would agree with that. It's fine. It's fine. Our job, I think, as advocates, Dr. Kelly, is, is to just arm people with more arrows in the quiver, right? As many things, like you said, you're you're open to anything. I'm the same way, um, and you you've been in this longer than me, and you you know have more clinical experience than I do. Yet, I'm sure there's a few things I could bring to the table, and the next person you talk with, and the next person you talk with. So that person that has that beast sitting on their front porch. And it's tempting them. They can take those arrows out and, you know, yeah. start literally firing those arrows and, and kill that beast for that day because it never really goes away. You know? Yeah. You have to have, you have to have those coping, coping skills daily. Yeah, definitely more outside. I love that. You know, I really do. When you look at the uh, pH balance and you look at the water, they're selling, it's mm -hmm. the biggest marketing con in the world. Look at what they're referring to when they say pee and the hydration, look at the pee. I'm not going to tell you guys, but it doesn't pertain to the real pH in our body. One of the ways to get that is barefoot in the ground, in soil, in sand, on fields, to make that connection with the earth. And the other mm -hmm. thing I'd say is when well, nobody's talking about this, so the presence of oxygen is the absence of disease. Nobody knows that out there, or well, very few people, because we only breathe 25% of our lung capacity. Mm. So we do. One of the reasons why people feel great after going to the gym <laughs> Yeah. And the oxygen in. So yep. when you breathe properly every day, no, every disease, Jeff, cancer, growth, 
starting hypoxic area of the body. All of them. When oxygen is present, then growth cancers cannot grow any further. It's fact. Google it. Google Gary Brecker as well while you're there. So we want to flood the, the body with oxygen every day. Like this is how I breathe. 25 times in the morning, 25 times afternoon, same at night time. Mm-hmm. What that does mm-hmm. is it gets in every cell around the body. We feel amazing when we start and then get outside for a 20-minute walk. Start talking to yourself with purpose. What I think is what will happen that day. Oh, do you know something, Jeff? I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a really hard, busy work, you know, week. Oh, of course it is. You just told yourself it is. But if I get up, I'm in a crazy week, and you know something? It's going to be amazing this week because I'm going to have fun. Yeah. I'm going to do my oxygen, my mirror work. I'm going to brush the teeth with the opposite hand. I'm going to set new neural pathways away from mm-hmm. the norm, and I'm going to change my mind and behavior and action today. I'm going to start today. Because everybody thinks we have time. Do you know something? I'll do it tomorrow. You don't have time. Most of the people we, we talk to on the deathbed, uh, relatives and friends, said the same thing. I thought I had more time. Nobody has time. You want to make that change? Do it today. You want to buy that house, date that girl, date that guy? Do it today. Do it Because the biggest regret we have today is when we're old enough going, you know, I should have started that business. You need yeah. a website and a, and a business card. If you have a full-time job, start something else on the side. What do you love? What do you love right. to do? And can I make money doing that and help others? Can I do that? I'm telling you now categorically that you can. Quantum right. physics backs me up here. You can be anything and anybody that you want to do. Imagine the, one of the dreams we had when kids, Jeff, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, throwing a football. I want to be an astronaut. What about you, Jimmy? I want to be a soccer player. You know what happens to them dreams, guys? I'll tell you, our friends and family kick them out of us. Don't be silly, Johnny. Can't be a soccer player now. Come on, get real. And that's what happens through our life. When I'm telling you guys, 8,000 patients under my belt, that you can be or do anything that you want. And people always say to me years ago, well, I can't be president of the United States. Really? Forget your political views for a second. We have a businessman running the country. Don't tell me you can't do anything that you put your mind to because you're fooling yourself. What's the old saying? If you believe you can or you can't, or you can't, you're right. You know, whichever one you believe. Um, exactly. You know, you talk about you talk about the present because that's uh, a challenge for people. It seems to be an impediment to improving mental wellness. Because really depression, if you think about depression for a moment, depression is something that has already happened. You're sad about something, <clears throat> upset you didn't get the job, the girl said no at the dance, or you lost your business, or you got divorced, so everything's backwards looking. Anxiety is future looking. Anxiety, you're nervous about the speech, you're nervous about the, the, the pitch deck you're going to make to the big investor for your startup company. That was a joke, because I am. Um, and, um, you know, so you're, you're anxious about something that hasn't happened. So you took it, you took depression, anxiety, you add them together. It's 95% of what makes people, uh, uh, unhappy with their lives is a combination of depression, anxiety, where is living in the present. And I believe so much in living in the moment, Dr. Rob (laughs) Kelly, I have a tattoo. This is, this is living in the moment. Uh, this is raindrop hitting the water. And every time I get, you do your breathing, I look at my tattoo and I think about, I only am concerned about my conversation with Dr. Rob Kelly right now. You're getting all my focus, all my attention. And that's how we need to talk to our kids and our adults, parents, our neighbors, our friends is depression and anxiety are things that have already happened and things that have never happened yet. But we spend 90% of our time in those worlds. And so- how do we reframe that? How do we pitch this, this idea of living in the moment better to more people? Well, let's talk about uh, fear. Fear is not real. Apprehension, maybe, but it's not real. It's something that's not already happened. Why are you worrying about that? It usually always turns out okay. Like you said, from the past comes depression. Now, when I get, when I get or everyone else out there gets depression, what do we do? Go to the doctor. What does he do? Gives, yeah. He says, oh. Gives you a pill. Yeah. It's time you feel back to normal. My, my problem is with that is why somebody asking why are you depressed and your serotonin's low in the first place? So the four chemicals every day, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. When we get them four chemicals flowing, you'll find your depression rises. Why is your serotonin low? That's all depression is. Oh, I can't remember. Do your trauma work. 
You know, get get all walk around, get sunlight, all the great things for serotonin. That will run. Exercise. Don't fall into the fact that the doctor knows best. You know, guys, I don't want to say some millions of doctors are great. There's some that just have a few minutes to see you. They're handing out oxycodone, handing out you know SSR tablets. Because God bless them, what else are they going to do? But don't fall into that trap. There's certain parts of the brain that reset every 24 hours. It's not an AA thing. Everybody thinks it is. It is. It goes way beyond. AA, years beyond AA. So when I rest between the hours of two and five in the morning is my really serious REM sleep. That's when everything starts to get repaired for the next day. That also is when most people die of natural causes because we're at our lowest when it comes to our defense. But then hours need to happen. So around six to seven hours of rest or sleep, good sleep every night, repairs the body ready for the next 24 hours. And those guys are coming, oh, yeah, I, uh, I, I can survive on four hours sleep. Come to me back in 15 years' time when you're only 14, you look 60. You, you don't. Mm-hmm. It's like people who say all the time, hey, listen, I work well under pressure. Uh, no, you don't. What's happened is your boss gives you an assignment on Monday that you keep putting off, and he needs it by 2 p.m. Friday. And at 10 p.m., 10 a.m. Friday, you go, oh, my God, you tap it in. And at 10 to 2, you send it, yeah. and you go, oh, I work well under pressure. You lazy pig. No, you don't. Could have been done on Monday and saved you. Oh, nobody works well under pressure. No, right. Nobody. They say that nobody. It's lack of right. planning. So we change all these things in our life, eat more raw foods, get the oxygen in, get the serotonin, all, down, all them chemicals working, then come to me and tell me that you're still as depressed as you used to be because it is impossible but the medical fraternity mm. also has the answer. The pharmaceutical companies run this country, period. So we just need to start looking after 24 hours. I don't know, Jeff, what I have tomorrow. Somebody called me up and say, hey, listen, you have Jeff, Jeff Johnson's show tomorrow? No idea. I don't get my time right. from the day until 8 o'clock tonight. Now, I right. can afford to do it. I have stuff around me. But right. when you live in that 24 hours, it's the most peaceful thing. Like right now at 1.50 my time, I'm enjoying this conversation thoroughly. What I'm yeah. doing at 10, 2 o'clock is de minimis right now. Yeah. When people come up and try, if you mean you were having a conversation in real life and we're talking and someone else comes, hey, Rob, listen, I point at them. No, not finished right. this conversation yet. Don't right. copy it. But people do that. Right. Their attention deficit is crazy. Yeah. Or then the invented ADHD. Which is a different uh, yeah. together. <laughs> yeah. I actually, in my bubble, I don't allow people to use the last D disorder because here's my thought is even if it is, you can trick your brain to believe it's not. In my case, it's never been a disorder. My dad didn't put me on Ritalin. He was a doctor. He, in my book, I wrote about this statistic. If this doesn't validate um, this attention deficit problem we have, by the way, I think our country's out of Adderall or was a year ago. Um, There was like, I think it was 600,000 prescription stimulants in 1990 given to kids 600,000 by 2011. So 21 years, it was 3.7 million. So I asked this question, is this a kid problem or is this an adult problem over diagnosis kids? How do you go from 600,000 to 3.7 million in two decades? You telling me kids are that much different in two decades. They're not. And um, that's a problem that lies on our shoulders as, as the adults. Now, I was a kid back then, so I have to blame the older generation above me. But the reality is, is that that seems to be, like you said, fast pace, you know, drive through mentality. You know, it took you so many years to get into your problem, but we want to get out of it in one pill or one TED talk or, you know, one 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 whatever, you know, and it, it doesn't work that way. And I think sometimes Dr. Kelly and what do you think about this is that people just don't want to put the time. They don't want to put the work in. They just don't. I mean, you said eat healthier foods. No one makes you eat what you eat. I don't, I don't care what, and I'm not a doctor. Maybe there's things that you have to eat because you'll die if you don't. But I mean, reality is you go to the store and you have between granola in the morning, oatmeal or captain crunch, and you have almond milk or whole milk that's a, that may seem like not a big choice, but if you replicate that a hundred times during the day, yeah. you could live another two more decades. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, it's funny. You know, I love this podcast right now is because you've gone, you know what you're talking about? Other guys like, Oh, you know, do we find the parents or the children or the medical fraternity? All parents want 
is the kids to be docile or away. Most mom and dad that works. So mm-hmm. we're happy to give the kids this. Do you know what attention deficit when I was a kid? I slap around the head. Get your stuff together. Concentrate. <laughs> Most people that have that that can't concentrate on one thing, they're the smart kids, maybe. Why yeah. they're the smart kids that are getting bored at school because the education is too slow for them. So they come out doing creative kids. And then we want to stick about Adderall at the age of eight, nine, and ten and think everything's okay. No. It's not okay. And Adderall is amphetamine salts. It's speed. That's all it is. How the hell can you crash the central nervous system and flood the brain and expect to go on and live a healthy life? You cannot do that. Well, let me tell you something you don't know about my story unless you read my book. Um, my son, Seth, his addiction journey started with Adderall in sixth grade. And in fifth grade, he was, or maybe Adderall was in seventh or eighth grade, but anyway, he was given Stratera by the very first doctor we took him to when he was in fifth grade. And um, I, if there's something I have to take to my grave as a life lesson, it's going to be that I didn't intervene. Um, I should have, I should have got a second opinion. And at, and then Stratera went to Adderall. And then he started taking double the dose because I made another problem as a dad. I gave him the bottle and let him self-diagnose or not. I let him self, um, uh, what's the word? Um, yeah, regulate, which again, that's on me as dad. I, I should have given him one Adderall each day. I, I didn't know you could abuse Adderall. Shit, I, I had no freaking idea you could do that stuff. And, and then I found out he was doing Benadryl and cough syrup and all these things. It just never crossed my mind as a naive alcoholic parent. And, you know, it went to marijuana, it went to alcohol, and then drunk driving, breaking and entering, cocaine, prison, heroin, fentanyl, death. And that all happened in six years, but it started with Adderall. It's crazy. And, and again, yes. you, you, you say with changing the dial and you say, I should have seen it, I should have known, I should have. you didn't have any idea what it was about. Nobody came up and says, hey, listen, when we put your child on this, there's going to yeah. be an addictive side to it, and he's probably going to kill him at the end. Nobody says that, so we right. trust the doctors. They must have no idea. Doctor, yeah. It's like, my goodness. It, I mean, I don't think he was naive at all. I just think that, you know, that's what we did. We, we, at one time, doctors were God. You know, when they said something, they were usually right. And then you bring it into the 21st century and it's, everything has to have a pill with it. You know, yeah. I know what these doctors get of the pharmaceutical company. I had a head to head with Purdue, the CEO and the uh, legal guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, and he was in Dallas, Texas. <clears throat> and we had a live morning show. And I told him what was what. And the very next day, Google this, guys. The very next day, they filed for bankruptcy because I wouldn't let it go. And he had all the stats and all the figures and all the tests and all the trials that we've done around that, and they were wrong. And somebody has to stand up and go, you know something? We need to educate parents, to educate children that this is not the way to go. It really yeah, is. If you're out the way we- up somewhere, some of the parents like it. And what's our government do? They give them immunity for a $6 billion fine. I mean, come on, really? That's 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 how we're going to – that's not going to stop anybody from doing this again. Never. Never. Because you don't know. You just follow the generation. Well, follow. it wasn't even half the pro- – I mean, they, they. I don't know what it was, 11 or $12 million they made on, on Oxy or whatever – or billion, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and then the second question is where does all the money go to? We're already seeing abuses um, or that's the um, – that's what I'm hearing. Uh, the money's not being spent where it should be being spent. But, um, with the time we have left, I guess what I have a saying, and it's obviously you are as passionate as anyone I've ever met on the show. Um, I have a saying and it's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal and it's on the back of my shirts. It's on our mugs. It's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. One of the problems I see in this whole mental health, uh, challenge that we have in front of us is lack of meaning and purpose. And I think, especially for Gen Z, if we could get kids to be more in service, to be more giving, less consumption and more giving and and lead, you and I lead by love and abundance and not fear and scarcity, because that's what that's what is prevalent today. All kids see is fear and scarcity. And the reality is I went around the United States last summer for 95 days in an RV. We had a 34 foot Hurricane Thor fully wrapped living undeterred U.S. tour. I went to 38 states, 35 nonprofits for 95 days. I didn't see one act of violence. 
not one fight in a Walmart. I didn't see somebody get cut off and jump <laughs> out and shoot them. But that's what kids see today all day long on social media. And so what they do, I'm getting way off track, but this is the beauty of attention deficit. I saw a chart the other day that said 100 years ago, it had your house where you lived and it had a circle of how far you could go out and play. Yeah. And then they said the next generation and the next generation. And I tell you what, it's, it, it makes the hair stand up on my arm now that kids today can't even go outside their damn yards and play because their parents are so worried about something bad happening. And we've got this generation of coddled kids that now are just having these tremendous things thrown at them like COVID and global warming and, uh, and the, you know, the plastics in the oceans and world hunger. And it's no wonder kids have a lot of doubt about the future. How do we change that? Turn the TV off. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's it. End the show. Good answer. <laughs> That's it. Turn the Love TV it. <laughs> disappear. Really. And turn your phones off for a while, too. You should have at least one day where, unless it's business, Sunday then, and all phones go off. All phones get put in the basket, put in the safe or, or left. There's a restaurant, I can't remember the name, is it here in I love it. And when you go in as a family, they take everybody's phone off and you put in the basket. If you don't know a dates and emeralds, you don't get in. I so love it. You have a meal where you sit down and I've got no phone. What am I going to do? How about talking to the family like we used to? Remember when we used to all gather at dinner? There's the mm -hmm. conversation. It was beautiful, you know, mm -hmm. but now everyone's too busy for anything. It's just nobody's got time for each other. Put your phone away and take a walk in the park somewhere. You'll be aghast how many people you meet, how many people are smiling out there. Listen to the birds, feel the grass on your feet. Sticking your nose in a screen 24 hours a day just brings fear, resentment, and chaotic life. I have a feeling that just knowing you now for 51 <clears throat> minutes that you're probably a lot like me and that the solution to these complex problems needs to be simpler, not more complex. <clears throat> and simple things, especially low-cost things like, you know, nature, um, you know, drinking more water, um, just things we can do to ourselves, everything we put in our body, everything our body's exposed to. It's the little tiny choices. Like I said, the grocery store, each time you pick something, go with the healthy option. It doesn't have to be the ultimate healthiest, but just instead of going with, you know, 15 added sugars, go with seven. You don't have to go to zero. Yeah. And if we all did this every day and then each day pass out one compliment, tell somebody that you love them, tell someone that they're doing a good job. You've already injected a lot of um, uh, adrenaline into me today just by your passion that I'll get off this this podcast. My next conversation I have, I'll be a little bit more wired than I was just by talking with you. So it is infectious. It, it, you can go viral in a good way. And I, I think that's I think that's something that we really, really miss because we just want to take a pill. Like I said, we want to watch a tape. We want to buy a book. We don't want to go to the gym, put the time in. We don't want to you know, pass on the, on the tasty foods and go with the stuff that's healthier for us. We don't want to turn off the TV. Um, I'm watching a documentary. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, but it's called chimp empire, man. It is, it is awesome. It absolutely. And it's such a great documentary because it's about these, these chimp. Um, I don't know what they call them. I'll call them a family of chimps, but I'm sure there's a technical term that, you know, it's amazing when you watch how they have their culture and they have their hierarchy and they have their drama and they have their, their deaths and stuff. And you think back to humanity, I'm like, man, they just live in a simple jungle. Yeah. It's, it, you know, but, but there's a lot of complexity of living in the jungle, but they are so creative in how to solve their problems by grooming themselves, taking care of each other. Why don't we do that? It's, I think we just need to be a lot more observant and take care of each other a lot better. And we could get, we could get this ship righted pretty quick. I think so. I, I don't think it's a long, I just think it needs people like me and you to stand up and uh, shout from the highest mountain and go, hey guys, you need to listen to this. You know, stop mm -hmm. everything we're doing and listen to what's happening to our world, and especially our country. Uh, and we need to do something about it. We need to shock people. That's what we need to do. Because nobody wants to know about the next door neighbor dying of a fentanyl overdose. You know, right. it's too close to home. Too close to home? Mm -hmm. I bet like, you, you must have thought, like, it's too close to home? Your kid could be the next one that's going to die. And, and ruin the life because of the stuff they're doing today, and and and, and it's too close to home. You need to get mm -hmm. a grip, yourself, parents, because pe the, our parents, my parents, 
uh, generations, not generations, years gone past parents. You dropped the ball, guys. I'm sorry, but you dropped the ball. Coming back from World War II, everything we met, you dropped the ball, guys, on raising families. And what's turned out? The generation continues to go. Like nobody's doing anything about it. Everyone can do anything they want now. There's no discipline anymore. And there's no consequences anymore. I mean, we've got to, we've got to start taking a grip on this, guys, and standing on the county. Yeah, the number uh, last summer when we did the tour, I think it was um, 780 Americans die every day from the deaths of despair, alcohol, suicide, overdose. It's 825 now. So it went up about 40 Americans a day just since last summer. Um, and I'm sure if I went back two, three, four, five years, it's been just incremental increases. Yeah. And so now we're at 825 Americans every single day. And that is a death statistic. I get that. And I have two of those, my wife and my son, alcohol and overdose or poisoning. But A, think of the collateral damage just in the one family. And then think of the millions and millions of families where death hasn't entered the front door yet. It's on the back porch. It's creeping through the woods. You know, it's coming. You can still have destruction and devastation, devastation without having death. And I think sometimes people get so hung up on the death statistics and they're like, well, you know, this many deaths. And I'm like, you don't need to have someone die to destroy your family and have generations never speak to each other. You could have everybody live. And I think, I think for me as an advocate that has two lost two really close, they're right over my shoulder here, my wife and my son is I still like to focus on the living statistics because that's where we can help people. I can't get my son and my wife out of the ground. But I can try to save someone that's not going in the ground yet. And that's 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 to me where I think I'm I've never been more optimistic about advocacy for mental health, substance abuse, and addiction than I have been right now. And I'm only fifty-seven. I've got a lot of good years ahead of me to, to really fight it this hard. And meeting people like you and all the other people I've met on this beautiful journey I've been on. I do feel I am a very fortunate human being to have this opportunity that death has given me to be a better man, not a bitter man. And I will go to my grave um, feeling this way. Do you know when families really pull together? Crisis or funeral. Good That's point. the only time you're going to get 30 family members in the same, in the same room. Doesn't happen. Good point. Remember Good when point. You, I remember we leave the door open, all your neighbors looked out for you, you brought dishes over. You, it doesn't happen anymore. Everyone's isolated in their little world. And we're going down and down and down. And the 800 and something you mentioned, I'll tell you the real figures. It's more like 3,000. They're the only figures being reported. But nobody wants mm. to talk about it because everybody mm -hmm. needs a pill or a quick fix or a treatment center to get them well. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, this is a very fast hour. Um, really, really appreciate your time. It's been an, an honor to meet you. Uh, and I, I certainly would hope we have a chance to collaborate at some point. I am going back on the road later this summer. Uh, we may come through Texas. I'll have to see. I was in Austin last year um, and had a great stop with a friend of mine that runs Simple Promise Farms in Austin. It's a recovery house. It houses eight to 10 men and they grow food and then they take them to um, farmers markets in Austin during the summer. And that's where they make their money. But these men, a lot of them are in, have been coming out of prison. A lot of them uh, have some serious felonies, but this guy bought this uh, farmhouse and he's made this beautiful uh, um, place for men to go to get better, to come back to society and, and, and you know, contribute. Yeah, it like is. More people. And while we're on the subject, I want to thank you, Jeff. Thank you for what you do, first of all. Thank you for being brave enough to walk through this. Sometimes this can be a lonely journey. We both know that. So mm -hmm. absolutely in awe of what you do. Absolutely in awe as a person. And just big thanks, man. You're the real deal. And I just love you to bits, man. Well, I'll just add you to the notch of all the great people I'm meeting on this journey. And um, I, like I said, how do people then, I, I know people watching this are really going to want to find out more about you. How do people reach you? Do you have books? Do you have, you know, things that people could learn more about? Maybe more intimate stories about you. Do you do speaking engagements? I mean, what are, what are ways people can reach you on maybe the, the main um, uh, platforms uh, and then we'll, we'll close the show and let you see a few final words. Excellent. Well, daddy, daddy, please stop drinking was the last thing my daughter said to me mm. uh, when she was three. 
so the books out there. We don't take anything off the book, guys. Nine dollars. Um, if you don't like it, text me. I'll refund your money. It's just getting people, families. It's a sad story going amazing. Get from homelessness, that's where I was, to being a success. For those guys that are listening, not watching, I spell my name with two Bs, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-O-Y.com is the website. And if you don't want to go there for any reason, Dr. Rob Kelly on any internet platform and you will find me, like us, text us. And listen, guys, I, want, I just want to leave you with this. I know it's a bit strange, but if you're at home, suffering from all the things that we've just talked about you think you'd never be good enough you think you might have a problem you've got nobody to turn to 214-600-0210 is my personal cell phone number mm. send me a text uh, i might not call back straight away but i will call you back because personally i would rather give you i'll change your life in 10, in 10 minutes i'll give you a pep talk that'll change your life otherwise i will send you a hundred dollars because I would rather help you for 10 minutes, no money involved, than hear of your death in the next couple of weeks. Hmm. Well, I've never had anyone give out their personal cell phone on the show, so I know how passionate you are into saving lives and helping people. So it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. I, I'm certainly going to invite you back on uh, down the road to get a get a summary. And, um, and I'll reach out to you privately, and maybe we can do some collaborating as well. So. Um, thanks again. Very much enjoyed talking with you.